welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the Initiative, and with me today, I have the great fortune, I've got Peter Nunns. Peter Nunns is with the Infrastructure Commission. He's an economist there, kind of head of researchy type. Director of Economics, yeah. That's the one. Yep. And previously has a number of stints in local government, Auckland Council, Wellington Council, and a lot of work on local government and infrastructure financing. So... Today, we're here to talk about some work that Peter and Nadine Dodge had done on the size and scope of local government, really. So here at the initiative, we've been worried about local government. We've liked the idea of smaller being better, competition among local councils, better reflecting local preferences. And the usual view in Wellington is that local governments are just too incompetent to be trusted with anything. If anything, they should be gotten rid of. Everything should be centralized. And... That didn't really seem to accord with the international evidence as we'd seen it. And Peter's done some substantial work taking a look at both internationally, is smaller better, and what's happening in New Zealand. So maybe walk us through your report. What did you find? And actually, before that, why was the Infrastructure Commission even interested in this? Yeah, so there's a couple of drivers for, for doing this report. One one was the the fact that in the really recent release, infrastructure strategy, we had a recommendation around um, looking at local government boundaries and whether they're actually well-suited for managing the types of issues that we're seeing in growing urban areas, which often entail the, the need for greater coordination, the need for for some degree of consistency in areas that are that are growing and spilling across established boundaries. So we, we, we thought that there was something in there that we needed to understand better. The second driver, which relates a little bit more to a lot of the analysis we did in the paper, is that New Zealand faces a rather large infrastructure challenge ahead of us over the next generation. We, we have more needs that are driving, driving spending than we have the ability to fund those needs. And there's a range of things that we need to do in response, of that, response to that, including looking at funding and financing mechanisms. But none of them work particularly well unless you look at the efficiency of what you're doing first. And so we wanted to dig into that and say, in local government, you know, which is an important provider of infrastructure, probably providing about a quarter of the public infrastructure that the country has in, in terms of value and in terms of new spending, what can we learn about how they do that, how cost-effectively local government does it, and whether there's anything that links back to the structure of local government that, relate, that, that, that can improve cost efficiency. So the usual story, at least that we'd hear in Wellington, and I remember when I was in Christchurch, we heard it too, when they were looking at the Auckland amalgamation, was that the problem was there are too many local councils, they're too small, they get no efficiencies of scale, they aren't able to manage the back offices because they're all fragmented, they don't have the capabilities to do anything. When you had a look at it, were the larger councils better able to provide services or was there kind of a mismatch? Pretty much a mishmash, right? So some small councils provided services quite the services that we looked at quite efficiently. Some large councils provided them equally efficient efficiently, and there were out you know examples of sort of relatively inefficient provision at both the small and the large council area. But on average, what we found was 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 no clear relationship between cost efficiency and scale. We didn't look at everything. I do want to just say that we looked at three areas that cumulatively comprise about fifty percent of council operating expenditure. Represent them. One of those was road maintenance costs. One was building consent processing, which was a bit of a proxy for for regulatory services. And then the third was the overhead and back office costs, like IT, governance, annual plans, that kind of thing. And in all three areas, the finding was consistent. It wasn't a clear relationship between size 
and and cost efficiency. Now, when you're saying there was no clear relationship, this was just taking an average. Well, when I've I've gone through the report. Obviously, rural councils with lots and lots of miles of road are going to have a different kind of cost structure than an urban council that's pretty tightly tightly packed and a few roads to be dealing with. How are you were able to just run the econometrics on this? Adjust then for the number of miles. How did this all work? Yeah, so I'll I'll, I'll dive into methodology a little bit. Um, there are some things that you can do that would be somewhat naive and, in my view, sort of improper to do that would that would that would give you a spurious relationship between size and and cost efficiency. One of those things is not controlling for those other factors like the the population density of the council and the extent of the road network, right? Because we know in New Zealand, smaller councils tend to have lower population densities because they tend to be more rural. Larger councils tend to have higher population densities, and we, when we investigated those using, investigated those relationships using about fifteen years worth of data for all the councils in the country and and testing all those different variables, what we found was that the population density factor mattered for for road maintenance costs. But it you know once you controlled for that, size didn't matter. Nice. Now, when you were looking at the cost of consents, that was just the monetary cost, right? Did you, you wouldn't have had any measure on there for the amount of time it took to process? Because whenever we talk to industry on this stuff, it's not just the monetary cost, right, of the application fees. It's the back and forth over months or possibly years and getting something done. This wasn't something you were able to pick up. Do you have any, or at least I didn't see it in the report. Is this something you had any intuitions on or that might be future work? Well, so we found this area just totally puzzling. Processing building consents is a standard service, right? Councils are required to do this under, under legislation, and they're required to charge no more than the costs to actually get the work done, right? You can't actually sort of make a profit on it. You can choose to subsidize it out of rates if you want. So we looked at, we looked at the costs to process a standard consent for a standard-sized residential house, and we gathered that data f- from what councils published on, online. 51 councils published information on what they'd charge the remainder didn't didn't um, publish it, but would make that cost available on request if you did want to request it. Some councils charge as little as $1,000 for that service. Some councils charges, charged as much as $7,000. There was a wide range there. And what we found was that we couldn't, we couldn't identify any factors that made sense of that range. You know, so population size of the council didn't seem to matter. The amount of building consent work that they have doesn't seem to matter. The population density didn't seem to matter how much they insourced versus outsourced the regulatory services didn't seem to matter. How much of their costs they recovered from users rather than rates also didn't seem to matter. There, there was nothing really in there that we could point to and say, this is why some councils do this cheaply and this is why some councils do this expensively. And I think the sort of number one thing that I took away from that is that's really that's a, a rock that needs to be turned over properly, right? Looking at looking at aspects like what you mentioned, right? Not just the cost to do it, but the quality of what what gets done, the timeliness, and so on and so forth. There seems to be this wide ver- wide wide variation in performance that is maybe important. Yeah, you can imagine some localities deciding that they'd have a fairly low cost service, but they would take a long time to process things. Other ones keep a lot of surplus staff on site just in case a consent comes through. They'll charge a lot to keep that redundancy in place. And then be able to process things really quickly. It would be nice if that were what, what we're driving it, but yeah. I'd be a little surprised. You, you hear, at least when you listen to people in the sector, kind of all over the place on stories of how long places might take. So you'd look beyond just New Zealand though, right? So mm. if, I, if I think back to my undergraduate study, we'd first heard of Tibu's theory 
And then we saw it again in, when I was in grad school. In theory, there are some reasons to expect that local government might work well. You looked beyond New Zealand to see what was going on internationally. What sorts of things were you seeing there and how New Zealand stacks up relatively? So what we found, and, and this was a surprise to us, and I think it's a surprise to a lot of the people that we've given the research findings to, New Zealand already has quite large local governments relative to the OECD average. So I think we're running at, at an average of about one local government, you know, at that, at that bottom layer of local governments, one local government per 75,000 people. The OECD average is about one local government per 38,000 people. And there's some places that have as few as one per, say, 2,000 people, right? So there's a wide variation in structure. We're, we're at the relatively large local government end. We're also at the relatively little responsibility for local government end of things, right? So if you look at the share of, of overall public capital investment done by local and state governments, New Zealand's right down the bottom of the list in the OECD. The average is that local and state governments or provincial governments or whatever do about 50% of the, of the capital investment by government, right? So 50% of the infrastructure. New Zealand's at about 25%. And we're not necessarily the only people over at that end of things, but we are at one end of the scale. I think that there's a really interesting paper to be written, and we only sort of started gesturing in this direction, that actually says, well, since there's such wide variation around OECD countries that have similar levels of income, similar levels of economic development, different sizes, right? So you've got a bunch of countries that have the same population size as New Zealand, think Finland and Norway. Why don't we go and actually look at what those different structures actually get you, right? In terms of quality infrastructure, good public services, and so on and so forth. I think that could be super important for informing the debates we're having here about these issues, is actually going and doing that benchmarking exercise. When you were looking internationally, you also had some data, right? So you were looking at the effects of size of local governments on a variety of outcomes. Were the results there consistent with larger being better, smaller being better, kind of a mismatch? So we looked at how that local government, average size of local governments and, you know, share of infrastructure, public infrastructure investment that was done by local governments, looked at how that related back to an earlier measure that we had of uh, sort of infrastructure efficiency scores. And what we found there was that there was no clear relationship between average size of local government and efficiency, but there did seem to be a correlation between having more infrastructure investment done locally and higher levels of efficiency of provision, right? Which could, you know, I want to stress it's a correlation, right? We don't know what's causing what, but that's certainly another thing where we took out what we would take away from the paper is this is an interesting rock to turn over. Well, New Zealand has had one fairly recent experiment, right? We amalgamated a whole pile of councils in the Auckland area. I remember being kind of annoyed with Rodney Hyde when he was pushing this because I thought, don't libertarians know about Tibu competition? What's, what's going on with this? The argument at the time had been, well, it was a, a mix of things. One, there was an argument around amalgamation giving you uh, economies of scale and scope and that, the, that you'd be able to provide better services and reduce costs. I never found that one particularly plausible. The other argument was that um, when zoning is left to a very small layer of government, it's easier to accommodate NIMBYs. And when you broaden it out to a citywide thing like the unitary plan that ended up coming of it, it is harder for local groups to block growth. So I would have thought that there would have been some kind of review of this. The experiment was a decade ago now. Has this been evaluated? Well, so there, there were a couple other things that were in the Royal Commission report as well, right? 
one of those was the administrative cost savings. So the Royal Commission report, I think, had a, had a number on this. It was somewhere in the order of $100 million of savings a year, which is, which is well measurable, right, after the fact. The second thing that they wanted to achieve was higher levels of democratic participation, right? So if you think about kind of voter turnout, that's, again, something that's pretty measurable. And then there was, as well, an objective around improving the quality of infrastructure provision and the, you know, coordinating uh, provision of a better level of infrastructure for the region than otherwise would be possible. And that's a bit harder to measure, but you could still think of some ways to measure it. Uh, Unfortunately, we've never done a post-implementation review of this. Or, or if one has been done, it hasn't been published. And so it's very difficult to say, did this stuff happen in practice? And if not, why not? Just getting on a soapbox for a second. When we go and do exercises like that and significantly change what we're doing, how we're doing it, the agencies that are doing it, it is so important to do that post-implementation review because we're not going to have perfect foresight over these things. We're going to get things wrong. And the only way that we adjust and do better the next time or tweak the structure so we get the outcomes we need that we said we wanted is if we go and find out what happened. We did not do enough of this. I, I thought that they'd promised that one of these was going to happen. Haven't seen it. When was it scheduled to have been done? I don't think it was ever in the schedule. There's a couple papers on DIA's website that, that set out a monitoring and evaluation plan. I think they were intending originally intending to do one sort of relatively early on in the life of the institution, but there's no time like the present. It's always depressing when we set up experiments and then don't follow through with the evaluation. There have been a few cases that we have done it well. I really liked that when uh, Helen Clark set up the accredited employer scheme for the RSA workers coming in. They baked evaluation into the framework and they actually followed through with it. They had very rigorous work done on it. That really seems to be the exception rather than the rule, though. This is something we're trying to promote for infrastructure projects. Tewahanga at the moment is, has released sort of stage one of the Transmission Gully Review that, that we were commissioned to do, and, and we're underway with stage two, the sort of post, post-completion review. So, you know, for major infrastructure projects, we've, we've got a, a, a significant interest in actually doing that work and doing it ourselves where, it, where necessary. But, you know, there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff that will fall below our, our threshold for getting involved or fall below, you know, outside of our resourcing. And I think what we rely on there is, is probably a, a culture across the public service and provider agencies of, of wanting to do this and valuing it. Well, it's all derived demand, right? If there isn't much pressure from the ministers that it actually be done, because sometimes they don't want to find out the answers or to be, if they get an answer, it might be difficult to deal with and it might be better just to not know, right? So to me, all of this seems to be derived demand. And if there isn't public appetite for it, that won't feed through to the ca- to cabinet and then cabinet pushes back down to the agencies. So that's all a little bit depressing. I mean, this is actually one where I think if you talk to people out there in the world, right? as opposed to in, you know, in the agencies that are providing this thing, there is a good deal of public appetite for understanding what's worked well and how to do more of it, right? You know, I, I think that a lot of people do this sort of as a matter of course in their own lives and, and re- reflect on what, what they've been doing, what's been going well, how to improve. And, and, and I, don't, I don't think it's an alien concept to us. I agree. We should be demanding better. When I start thinking through some of the implications of the work that you've done here, and you probably wouldn't want to get into some of this, if there aren't really the sort of back office gains in administrative burden when, when you amalgamate smaller entities into much larger ones and we don't see big efficiencies and we see a big reluctance to actually review what's happened, it makes me a, a little bit more nervous about some of what's going on in the water, in the water side. Now, I'm, 
expecting that the infrastructure commission wouldn't want to want to be going there too much. But to me, one implication of this is that we shouldn't be expecting huge efficiencies in back office savings if we take a whole pile of small water companies and turn them into four big water companies. So what what we've said in the water space that's really important is the role of economic regulation in driving, first of all, driving transparency in terms of who's doing what well, and and secondly, in, in setting incentives to do better, right? If you reflect upon you know, our findings in this research report and other areas outside of water, right? The, the, the remarkable thing in, in, say, an area like building consent processing is, is the degree of variation in cost, right? You know, there's some local governments that seem similar to other, local go- other neighboring local governments that, that, that charge very different uh, rates for doing this. And, and I, I think what that says to me is, is that there's a really important system role for somebody providing that transparency and asking those questions about, well, if if you're doing this thing at twice the price as your neighbor, can you just please explain this to us and maybe give us a plan for getting down to their level, right? That's something that I think is happily part of part of the reform proposal in, in the water space, probably going to be very important to, to, to getting those outcomes. Nice. And, of course, the amalgamated entities will also have potentially greater access to funding and financing. And to me, that's been like the the bigger problem in the water sector that councils just haven't been able to fund the infrastructure that they need to support growth because they hit up against their debt limits and they haven't had reasonable ways of ring fencing those costs to those who are benefiting from it. Maybe the amalgamated entities will be better at doing that. Maybe it'll be because of a massive backstop provided by taxpayers if anything goes wrong. But we're at the initiative, we're doing a little bit of work looking at this and the history of infrastructure funding and financing, other ways that projects could get funded, and perhaps that as alternative in the three water space. But I'm sure we'll have you back at some point to talk through some of those issues once we're a little bit more progressed in it. Well, I mean, one, one thing, I'll talk about another sector, right? If we look at the example of electricity reform, right? Oh God, we, yeah. th- that probably took 30 years to sort of iterate through through all the design of it, right? You know, we commenced a reform process and then had to sort of keep going and adjusting bits of it to make sure that we were actually getting the outcomes we want. So it took us a long time to go from the idea that we should move to a market model in electricity where appropriate in generation, not necessarily transmission, to the reality of having that working well. And I think that as you as you sort of go and significantly reform, try to reform a sector that's not working as well as it could be, you're always going to run into that same problem of, of needing to actually go and adjust and tweak because, you know, it will be difficult to get all the details right in, out, in the outset. And I, and I think what's important in that context is that you're continually actually learning about how, how things are going and you're understanding where there are areas that you need tweaks. And I think secondly, and this is where a, an organization like the initiative is so important, is actually having some ideas about what are some different ways we could approach some of these things, Right where we find that, that there's a need to sort of go and play. Well, we're going to have some fun doing that playing. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really looking forward to that. We've now got Matthew on, who's going to be looking through some of the history of this with us. So a few bottom lines then for me on this. Local government in New Zealand seems to be underrated. It uh, does not have as large of a role as it could have. Other places have greater reliance on smaller local governments, fewer people per local government, each authorized with more responsibility, they don't have, there's no, we're not seeing 
large evidence of economies of scale and scope when you amalgamate entities and some benefits potentially of letting things be done at a smaller scale. So it'd be great if eventually the post-implementation review could be done on Auckland. Uh, If DIA ever got around to that, I hope that we wouldn't have to end up doing it for them. And we should perhaps be a little bit more skeptical about amalgamation in general, whether in local government in total, or perhaps in thinking through some of the touted benefits for other sectors like water. Well, I'd I'd probably nuance that last one a bit, right, around skeptical of of amalgamation. I I think that we've we've found that there isn't a slam dunk case in terms of cost efficiencies. Yep. But there are some other areas that really bear a careful examination, right? One of those is probably the coordination of infrastructure that crosses crosses, um, boundaries, right? Sure. And I think what I would say there is, is that that's something that's very difficult to measure, right? It's probably very important for good, for good infrastructure provision. And it's also probably one where a range of institutional forms can get that done. And I think that, you know, you go to the rest of the OECD, right? And, and we should be looking around to figure out what we can learn about how to coordinate. Sure. Well, that's one of the reasons that I understood that we had local government and then regional government, right? So regional government was basically set around watersheds for managing the externalities of water use that flow across local government boundaries, local governments much smaller than that for internalizing much more local effects, and then national for much larger things. Unfortunately, too much has been brought up, in my view, has been brought up to the national level rather than being left with local councils. And we've, uh, well, kind of let them deteriorate over time and lose capabilities. It may be time for rebuilding them. But that's enough of my soapbox on that. But I'll look forward to chatting again once we're a little bit further progressed on some of our work on infrastructure, and especially in the history side, we'll bring Matthew in on that. I understand that you've got a bit of an interest in this as well, so it'll be it'll be interesting. Give it a couple, a couple of months. Thanks very much for having me, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Peter. I've really enjoyed learning a lot more about local government, and I'll look forward to more chats in future.